know what really makes us mad? Is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk! What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. I'm your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we choose one year at random and select one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year to discuss. Today, we are joined by James Joyce of the band The Hal Al-Shaddad, who are an Atlanta emo-core, post-hardcore band from the mid-90s. They have recently reissued their self-titled record on Noise Real Records, run by friends of the show, Justin Martin of If It Kills You. And this conversation is a lot of fun. We cover a lot of different topics. My One of my favorite parts is just talking about the Southern and Atlanta scene during the mid-90s. Really fun insights from, from James. And then an excellent conversation about this record that I honestly feel like we left a little little on the table to talk about but uh, what record are we talking about today don we are talking about duty now for the future the 1979 uh sophomore record by devo yeah it's funny i i think before we'd even recorded this episode you had mentioned how it wasn't your favorite album by them or one that you skipped and we don't we don't we don't really get too much into that on the show but yeah like i said i feel like i feel like we could have gone another hour yeah <laughs> talking about things yeah, I think we could. I mean, honestly, I think we could have broken this record down even more, but um, it was a good conversation. I think we mm-hmm. uh, I talked about a lot of relevant things, even if they don't aren't directly tied to the record, because it's funny. We I mean, we have conversations about, you know, ephemera and like, you know, odd um, oddities in your record collection or, you know, people writing their names on album covers or keeping things um, for posterity uh, we talk about celebrities and recognizing famous people in public. And I feel like all of those things are very Devo coded things. <laughs> um, I mean, if you've ever seen any like recent interview footage of like people touring uh, Mark Mothersbaugh's studio and just all of the wild shit that he just has from 40 years ago, 50 years ago that he's just got drawers full of stuff. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's that's the mentality of a Devo fan. Just keeping everything. And uh, having scattered, strange connections <laughs> to a lot of different topics. Yeah, it's a really great conversation. I, I had a lot of fun talking with James. And you can head on over to our Patreon for $1. You get access to all of our weekly bonus audio. And last week, we did a chart dive on the year 1979. Because, oddly, we've never done that year. So, surprised that we haven't done that. But we're talking about the albums that were also released that year. Not just punk music, but just kind of overall in general. Or you could join at the $10 tier, make a one-time $10 donation, and you get to choose the album we devote an entire episode to. We're going to be doing one of those next week, so that's going to be really fun. And so if you want to get your album pick in there, just go in, say, sign up one time, $10, drop back down to $1 or zero. You don't have to stay, but uh, we'll put it on the main feed for you, and we'll talk about it. And we're on all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, X, Blue Sky, Threads, everything at Punk Lotto Pod. Punklotopod at gmail.com and our voicemail line 202-688-PUNK. And I think that is all of our plugs up top. So enjoy this conversation with James Joyce of the Hal Al-Shaddad.
first off, uh, how how am I pronouncing this, the name of this band? Hal Al Shaddad? Yeah, the Hal Al Shaddad. Okay, it is. It is essentially how it's written. Okay. Yeah, cool. yeah. It's we came from a time period when you had those really annoying band names that you had to explain to people all the time, <laughs> or like it would always be wrong on the flyer, or there it, you'd have like you go to a like you play like a venue or something. You'd be like, yeah, we're here. What band are you in? Oh, I'm in the Hal Shaddad. What? What are you in? Like, <laughs> we're called the Hal Shaddad. Oh, okay. And and it's a, you know, it's it's from that time period. I mean, we were around from 95, 1995 to 1999. And in that time period, in that kind of DIY post-hardcore time, like bands just had really annoyingly complex or just strange names, I feel like. I feel like they're... <laughs> There's a lot of bands around that. I mean, I'm sure it's still the same way, um, but from from my perspective, it was a weird time for bands. Like, and I think we were one of the easier ones. When I think of bands like, you know, Constantine Sincati and uh, God, what are some of the other ones? I mean, even Clickatatic Katawi. Yeah. It's like if you don't, I remember first seeing the Clickatatic Katawi album, the one on Gravity that's got the painting, the green, yeah. whatever, illustrated by. I remember seeing it like literally because we we had a house in Atlanta called the Driver Dome and we did shows there and we had a a guy, Gavin Frederick, uh, who does stick figure records and he had a distro. And I vividly remember like pulling out that record and thinking it looks so cool. But then like, what the hell is this band name? Like click Atatic Atawi and couldn't even pronounce it. And then over time, it just becomes like kind of a household name. So it just kind of rolls off the tongue. It, but those were uh, the days, I, I guess. You know? It was funny. I was doing some research on. We did a Rocket from the Crypt episode a few weeks ago, and I was doing yeah, some yeah. Re- research and watched them. They were on like 120 minutes with uh, Matt Penfield, and in that they were asking, like, you know, he was asking them, like, what are some San Diego bands that people should check out? And I think it was Adam Willard was like, oh, there's this band called Clickatat Ikatawi, and I was like, whoa, I never <laughs> expected that name said on MTV of all places. <laughs> I'm sure all those guys like Mario and them were like, awesome. Like our name was spoken on 120 minutes. <laughs> so, that's so amazing. I, I love, I mean, I love that you did rock from the crypt. I'm always so bummed that they're like, some of those albums are so hard to get, you know, on vinyl or get reissued and all that. But man, talk about an amazing band. I know that's not this episode, but I, I really yeah. uh, appreciate it. And, and also all the San Diego bands and, and everything. They were they were very uh, influential to us as somebody as, as bands from across from the other side of the country. Um, and a lot of them never really made it to the East coast, you know, uh, only, only a handful we really got to see ourselves, but, but yeah, we were more on the, 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 I mean, coming from Atlanta, Georgia, you know, we, we had a lot of connections to the Florida. Like we played a lot with like Palatka. If you remember them, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the no idea bands, um, Columbia, South Carolina, like Ass Factor 4, uh, Inhumanity, and then going up the the East Coast. And we came really good friends with, or, or like going to Philadelphia a lot, we came really good friends with uh, Franklin. Van Franklin was a, a huge in, inspiration to us. And I, I still think Franklin is one of the best bands of, you know, of that kind of era, I think of kind of 90s DIY bands. And and obviously, Ryan and Maria were big you know, buddies of ours, you know, we did a split seven inch with them. We toured a lot with them and, and they were, you know, they were our friends. They are our friends, um, but they were 
our friends back then. Cause I think you always need like a buddy band, you know, when you're yeah. at least if you go on tour together, you can play to each other. If yeah. nobody, yeah. you know, so that, that was always nice to have. And, and, and Brian and Maria and Franklin especially were just such, you know, they, they just had such a good time. It was always, it was always uh, nice to do a tour with them or to play various strings of shows with them uh, over the years. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, what the Atlanta scene was like back then, because I think nowadays when people think about like emo, emo core, anything like that, they tend to think of like Midwestern emo and it's yeah. whole thing or even specifically like the D.C., Maryland area, the you know, the mid-Atlantic region. Yeah, it, I think like Southern emo and like post hardcore and stuff like that from that era is super underrated and overlooked. And I was just wondering, like, what what was it like in Atlanta specifically? I know you mentioned some Florida bands and some South Carolina bands, but yeah, Atlanta had an interesting scene. So, you know, the really sort of early on Neon Christ was the big Atlanta, like hardcore band sort of Neon Christ and DDT in the early 80s to like 85 or so were like sort of the, the quintessential hardcore bands. Uh, and then in the late 80s, there was a band called Afterwards. And they had an album on Samich Records, which was Amanda McKay's label. You know, they had uh, Soulside, uh, Swizz, Shudder to Think. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, they were like, you know, uh, Samich number six. <laughs> so they, <laughs> the guys in afterwards sort of built this kind of Atlanta ecosystem of, of, of shows. They sort of built up the, I guess, what you consider the emo, you know, sort of scene of Atlanta um, from the late 80s, they were the ones that brought Fugazi first to it to Atlanta. So the first couple of Fugazi shows were booked by the guys in afterwards. Ignition, Soulside, I mean, just amazing shows that they had. Uh, they broke up around 19, the end of 1989. And then there were a few bands uh, sort of bridging the gap. There was a band called Fiddlehead from Atlanta. So not the Fiddlehead that's around now, but there was an yeah. older band called Fiddlehead. Amazing, amazing band. And then I was in a band called Car vs. Driver, which okay. was, we started in 93 and, you know, we did a, a split with Spirit Assembly. We sort of like carried the torch of like what afterwards kind of started and sort of continued things in uh, along that trajectory. And so we became the, the de facto band to play with, you know, every kind of regional emo band or, or a band sort of of the same kind of scene. Uh, that would come through um, and kind of built a, a kind of a big kind of following or fan base or network of people. Um, but then all these other bands also started coming in, like um, the band Inkwell uh, is kind of known a bit. I mean, they're maybe not so much of a household name, but they were an amazing band of Atlanta at that time. And, and Hal Shaddad did a split seven inch with Inkwell and Phil Dwyer, the, the, the singer of Inkwell was the one who did all the design work for all of the Hal Shaddad releases. So all of the, all of the artwork is from, from Phil, from Inkwell. Um, they were our, our best friends um, until, until they broke up, you know, that's always, they were our, our original buddy band was, was Hal <laughs> Shaddad and Inkwell. Um, Portrait is another uh, kind of thought of as an emo band from Atlanta. Um, I know that there's a, a lot of, they have a big cult sort of following, um, I don't know. Over the years, I know portrait records go for a lot of money, <laughs> you know, that kind oh, of thing. Wow. And and there's a band called Freemasonry that we we loved. I mean, they were 
oh my God. I kind of look at them when you think about like Rocket from the Crypt, they were like our version of a, a kind of a blend between Rocket from the Crypt and, and Jawbox. So they're almost like a, a, a DC version of a Rocket from the Crypt, just in, incredible driving, um, a little bit of a San Diego drive like Jehu kind of vibe to them too. Um, but they were they were unbelievable. Their records are are amazing. So yeah, we had this really nice network of of Atlanta bands, and we had you know from the late '80s through the early '90s, we had all ages venues that we could have shows at. So like we play with Hoover, or we play with Rain Like the Sound of Trains, or we play with you know everyone who played with Drive Like Jehu when they came through. Wow. You know, Unwound, you talk about Unwound. Um, the, you know, those, all those types of bands. You played with Lungfish and Brainiac and whoever. But then things shifted around the time that Hal Shaddad started and we started doing house shows. So we moved into our own house. We called it the Driver Dome. It was like the Carver's Driver House. Uh, and we we did shows there, you know, all the way for the next four years or so. Almost, we were one of the network of houses that did shows in Atlanta, and it was um, it was a really special time. But that that was that was fun, you know. Everything sort of became very small scale, you know. Instead of being playing at a club and there would be like 150 people there, well, now you're playing at a house that was like only 25, maybe 30 people in a basement, but like a very devoted, you know, people just super into it and in, in a very kind of special time, I think. Was that an was that an active choice or was that more of just like clubs stopped booking those type of bands? Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of funny when you think about it in, in the you know from from this perspective, like 30 plus years later, is that the clubs it just started getting it just we didn't identify with it anymore. Like the clubs were were all ages, but you know, they, they sold beer and it was, you know, it was a club kind of environment. It was, there was an event that happened in Atlanta where a kid got, and, and this, there was a club called the cotton club in Atlanta where um, a kid from Georgia tech who was underage, got drunk. He passed out in Piedmont park and drowned. He died. Oh, wow. And it was, this big clamp, like sort of at that point, almost overnight, a lot of clubs became 21 and over. Mm -hmm. And so at the same time, I'm not saying that they were exactly correlated, but there was just kind of this, like things were changing. And also the all ages clubs, I felt like were shifting towards, you know, they would have like other shows that we didn't really identify with. And we just sort of wanted to create our own. We wanted to play like non-traditional places. So we we always we would play like like I said house shows. There was a network of houses that were doing shows there. It became super DIY. Like we didn't want to be like affiliated with a business of like running a club. Like making sure you get enough people in the door so they can pay their sound man, so they can pay their you know their doorman, they can make their money for the night. You know, it's like we just didn't feel like being part of that machine. So we wanted to do things, you know, in different places. And 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 then obviously it's like the same thing that was happening all over the country and, and all over the world. But like, you know, doing house shows or we, we would play uh, Under the Couch, which was part of Georgia Tech. It was like a um, uh, sort of a I think it really wasn't for outside bands. It was really supposed to be for just Georgia Tech students. But it was like almost like a, a rec area for Georgia Tech that had. 
a stage and had a PA and we had like, we had Juno 44 play there. We had, you know, we'd have like touring bands play at under the couch and it was, you know, it could hold like 150 people when it was all ages and we never had any problems. There was no alcohol, like it was cheap. Um, so it was, it was really cool. Um, so I think there was just kind of this, this idea of, of moving away from that, that sort of machine, that kind of club machine where you're, you know, you're essentially the entertainment, you're bringing in the band, you know, you're bringing in people to spend money on beer or whatever else. And it always just kind of like turned us off. And it's kind of funny because nowadays it's kind of like that again. I mean, I know that it would be nice if there was more, I feel like there always needs to be some sort of an all ages DIY type environment, you know, some, some kind of a infrastructure in a town because kids need to like start playing shows when they're like 15, you know, mm-hmm. like it, yeah. you can't, if all your clubs are, or all your places to play live are 21 and over, it's like kids aren't going to play in bands or they're, they're going to need to have something, you know, some place to, to, to play and to play for their friends. And I think a lot of I mean, people, people are resourceful. They'll, they'll, they'll set up their own networks. And I think that's kind of what we did. And, and I encourage that. I always want, you know, even in Atlanta, it's like, I'm always kind of looking out, trying to see where there's like an all ages type, you know, situation. Um, we're, we're planning on maybe doing a Carver's driver show this summer and we're looking for, I mean, it's like, yeah, it, we do want to do the, the, the club show because it's, there's a club called the Earl in Atlanta that's been around now for 25 years. So it's kind of related to that, but we kind of want to have an all ages element because we just come from this very kind of fiercely DIY all ages kind of inclusive background in a way. So, yeah, it's tough. Cause I, I haven't really thought of it, about it when we were in a band in in our town uh it, it was it was non-traditional venues that we played at because it was the only places to play because our yeah. town's pretty pretty small so it's not like there was like a real big music venue and if there if there was a music venue it was for like bands that you know had a guarantee and that kind of stuff so yeah right uh, there, there were definitely places we couldn't get in but even even still like more like a you know there was like a bar that we could have booked shows at very easily but it was definitely like that's not our scene <laughs> Yeah, like, we don't want to hang out at that bar. <laughs> right. It's not like you don't you don't identify with these people and it's almost like just a different group. And there could be a whole group of bands like there are bands that were, you know, maybe four years older than us that come from that scene, more of like the bar scene of Atlanta. And and there's like cross pollination, but it was a little bit of like worlds collide, like when one of those bands would play our house there was just this culture shock sometimes they'd be like, what the hell? Like nobody's, nobody's drinking. Like, where's the keg? There's no keg. <laughs> You're spending, you know, the show starts early because we, we had to make sure the shows were done by like 10 PM. You got some weirdo selling records in the front room of bands I've never heard of. Like, this is just so, it just kind of blew people's minds, you know, that, that we sort of had this culture and this whole, you know, network set up and, and it's sort of like the same, just playing the equivalent type of place in every town, you know, had some version of this, you know, going on. And I'm sure, you know, still does. I'm just now I'm 48 years old. So I'm, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because like nowadays they'll have shows like house shows. And I'm like, I feel really weird 
as like a 48 year old, like <laughs> I don't feel comfortable going into some like 23 year old's house to see a band play. I just, I don't know why it's just, I've, I've got weird hangups about it, you know, but I appreciate, you know, people doing it and, and, you know, creative, creating things, creating things on your own. I think that's, that's important. You mentioned car versus driver. And the first time I ever saw one of your records was in a record store in Charlotte called Lunchbox Records. Of and course. then I look, I looked into it and <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh, what label is it? <laughs> it started as a record label first before turning into yeah. a store. And the guy who runs it, Scott, like he helped put that record out for you. So I, I it was like, well, my mind's blown right now. That this just like yeah. the world's colliding for me. Yeah, Lunchbox Records. Actually, they put out the first. Um, well, no, not the first. They put out Lunchbox Records. The second Hal Shadad single was right. was the Lunchbox Records split with Inkwell. Um, and actually, Lunchbox has a weird history in Atlanta. It 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 doesn't actually start with the Wishart Brothers. It goes back to other people. I don't even understand it, but. When I was in high school, there was a tape that came out called The View. And The View, I bought in Tower Records at Lenox Mall in, in, in Atlanta because I was too young to go to record stores, true record stores at that point. And it has all, all these bands, like this first time I heard Neon Christ, first time I heard um, Afterwards, the first time I heard Such As and other bands that were from that time, Fiddlehead, they were all on this comp, really important kind of seminal Atlanta comp of the like later 80, like 86 to about 89. But um, the, Steve, Scott Wishart, who, who runs Lunchbox Records in Charlotte, his brother, Steve Wishart, was the bass player of Carver's Driver. And, wow. um, and Scott was in a band called Scout, which was also a, a really big, important band, I think, of that, that time. Also our buddy band, you know, from, from, those, from those, those days. But uh, yeah, Steve kind of ran the label for a certain time period. And then, you know, Scott was, you know, in the Carolinas doing, working at Manifest Records and other places, and then eventually opened his record store and called Lunchbox Records. So we were, it was such, it's nice to see that the name still carries on, even though, you know, it's gone through so many hands and that Steve or Scott still puts out records under Lunchbox Records as a label, you know, every once in a while there'll be mm -hmm. another release. So yeah, yeah, those, the, the, the Lunchbox discography is pretty cool. I, I think the, the, the split between Freemasonry and Scouts, the tw split 12 inch, which is amazing. The Carver's Driver albums, the, the singles, the Hal Shaddad, the Inkwell stuff, there, there's just a lot under that label, at least from that Atlanta time period that I, that I really, I, I love all that stuff. So. Yeah. It's just yeah. funny. It's just a, it's a small world. I guess that's the small world of like Southern punk and hardcore and emo and all that kind of stuff, because it's, it's yeah. a little bit more scattered down here. Like I'm in North Carolina. And so like in the two thousands, I think things got a little bigger for this type of scene for that kind of stuff. But it always felt like later stuff was more, 2000 or more like northern midwest mm -hmm. la the south just seems like an odd mishmash of different kinds of things yeah it's kind of funny because there weren't any bands like until the 2000s you have a totally different generation of bands that came out 
Um, I would say deer hunter is the closest one that kind of we know of or that we were connected to um, because Josh Favre, who was a bass player of deer hunter, um, came from our kind of circle of bands. Um, he was in a band called Electro Sleep, Electro Sleep International um, with, you know, Mike Keenan from Wheeljack, who also used to play with Carver's Driver. Like there's there's this kind of like trajectory that you get to that ties to a band like Deer Hunter that, you know, is a is a household name, you know, from Atlanta. You know, the guys in the Black Lips were younger than us and came from a completely different scene. Like they kind of had their own kind of house show scene after all of our after we had all grown up or like gone out of, you know, left our houses and got out of college or started our adult lives or whatever you know the black lips started doing you know their own shows um you know in a completely different kind of scene but then remnants of our kind of scene kind of became part of that like uh greg king who was in Yacha, uh who was another band from atlanta during the the 90s time period that i was in mostly and uh greg king you know started uh the Carbonas, uh, who, uh, and, and now in Gigi King, who are, you know, affiliated with that sort of later, I'd say, house show scene, a little different vibe. Um, and, you know, the, the guys in Mastodon used to play in bands that we would play with, that they came more from the, the West End warehouse scene, which is a totally different part of Atlanta's kind of musical, you know, heritage that I actually have a lot of connection with in, in the modern era. I play in a band right now called Blood Circuits that has two of the guys who used to live in that West End warehouse scene, uh, as well as Sarge, who was the guitar guitar player singer from Freemasonry, which is my favorite band from the 90s, when they wanted to, during the pandemic, when they wanted to start playing again, they were like, do you want to play? And I was like, well, if I'm going to play with, you know, the, the guitar player singer of my favorite band from that time period, like, hell yeah, I'm going to play. <laughs> um, so we're, you know, we're, it's it's been fun playing, you know, in blood circuits with those guys. But yeah, I'd say like, you know, the bands from Atlanta that you would know later on, Deer Hunter, Black Lips, Mastodon, The Coat Hangers, like they kind of have like distant ties to like the 90s scene. But like the people from the 90s and those bands, you know, you they're, they, they're other than doing some touring, like, you know, Hal Shaddad, we did for four years, we played like maybe I think 170 shows or so, did a a lot of little tours, a full U.S. tour, a full Europe tour, but otherwise sort of, you know, kind of did what we did and that was it, you know, it wasn't like um, would have been, you know, a known band that carried on for years and years and years. Uh, although I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative that the guys in Noise Reel wanted to do this reissue because that was like, that was, that was pretty cool because that album, the first Hal Shaddad album and really all of Hal Shaddad stuff has been out of print since probably about, 1998 or so so it's like if people it's not like you can find our old albums like on discogs and things but it's just nice to have to have it reissued and it it you know it's it's all new you know it sounds amazing it's been i think they did a really great job with it so i'm very appreciative that they were they were into doing it yeah i i was gonna ask about that because uh noise Noise Reel is run by uh, Justin Martin, uh, yep. who was in the band If It Kills You, who we actually had on the show, what, two years ago now at this point? Great band, too, from Bakersfield. And he's the one who actually reached out to me about having you on the show. So I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. Totally open to having 
you know, people on the show, especially now, since we're trying to bring that back into our rotation. Yeah. And, and I guess one of my big questions was like, so how did, how did the reissue come about? You know, Justin reached out. Um, I, I did, let me, how did it all come back? I think honestly, I saw a post from, um, like three years ago, um, I helped my dad move out of his house uh, that he'd been living in in forever. And, you know, we're all getting older. So I'm, I'm helping him move out into, you know, different living situation. And we came across my old, all the merch, like all the unsold merch from the Hal Shaddad days. Like when, when we finished, we played our last show. I think the bin of all of our unsold records and t-shirts and seven inches and everything just got put in into the basement, like on a shelf. And, and so I came across it and it was like, Oh, I found, you know, 30 copies of the, of each of the Hal Shaddad albums and like a lot of extra copies of the singles and all that. And I, I put it out there on social media, like, Hey, I've got extra copies. Who wants to buy one? And so I ended up selling all those. And I think that was sort of a, an initial kind of thought of, kind of like, well, maybe some other people might want to buy this. And I think, you know, Justin got in touch and, you know, I I can't remember exactly how it came to be, but it was kind of like, do you want to do a reissue of the first Hal Shaddad album? Uh, And I was like, you know, yeah, that'd be super, that'd be great. I I don't have, like, I have no expectations about, you know, if they want to do it, then I'm totally fine with it. But I I wasn't, it, it it wasn't anything I was like seeking out. But I'm really glad he did because it was it was a really an amazing experience to, you know, go through revisiting, you know, the the recordings and the artwork and and they they redid everything sort of exactly to to how it was originally presented, um, which I always loved the way they did the artwork on this album. It's all, um, you know, they, they all these video stills from from shows that they took. It's kind of Phil put it together as like a a surveillance dossier was, was the album. And, um, and it was funny how they, they recreated it exactly. And they have um, our ID cards that I always laugh about. Um, I lost my ID card immediately after I, I wish I still had it, Um, but we made them, you know, at at the Kinko's in town and, um, and they were using the artwork, but um, also the insert was really cool because it was a manila envelope or a manila file folder with like, you know, a sticker and the, the lyric sheet and a picture <laughs> of us and the staple, it was all stapled together. And the staple always made like an indentation in the art or in the, you know, in the LP sleeve, there's like a mark of where the staple is. So I, I just laugh when I see that, you know, they, they completely redid the, the original pressing of it um, along with the staple. That's also left the mark on my, my new version of it, you know, it's like perfect. You can't really, but, unfortunately, you can't really see the staple in the like images online, but that was, that's so cool. That yeah. They, I know when, when, um, when, when Gavin, uh, he, Gavin Frederick, the guy who was the distro guy back in the nineties um, at our shows still is, it still does it. Like he's, I, he's been able to live off of punk rock his entire life. It's amazing. But he sells on his Discogs page is stick stick figure distribution stick figure recordings. He sells like he sold my unsold copies of uh, of gotcha. uh, extra copies I have. But it's funny because he has to 
be, even though it's an unplayed copy, he still has to mark it as like the media or whatever. The sleeve is like, it's not near mint. It's like um, VG plus or whatever. I don't know. The, yeah. I always forget like, the grading, but it's not like, even though it's an unplayed copy, brand new, because of the staple mark, he has to mark it. Like he has to downgrade the quality of the record because of the staple that leaves yeah. the mark on the sleeve. I like that's that's just perfect. So the uh, yeah yeah I guess you, you I guess you have to point out like shelfware if it's like been sitting in like a crate for a long time and it's got a little bit of dings on the corner. Yeah, you you have to point that stuff out because people on yeah. Discogs or eBay will be like, what what you this is not a near mint you know <laughs> freaking uh, out over. I can't it. Even imagine. I mean, just the the. <laughs> I don't know how people sell, you know, if you're like a professional, if you work, if you do like that kind of life where you're selling records off of discogs and stuff, I just, I feel for just how much of a nightmare the customers must be, you know, just like, just, I don't know, just always complaining about everything and being (laughs) like, this was not near mint. This has whatever blah, blah, blah mark on it. And this and that. It's just like, Oh God. (laughs) I think I've, I think I've complained about like a used record I bought, like, maybe one time it was like an ebay yeah. buy and it was just like unlistenable it was so uh, worn and the guy yeah. like visually graded it you know he was he was near mint yeah well it wasn't <laughs> like it wasn't a case it was definitely like i was expecting a level of wear to it. it he definitely didn't go like as far as to be like oh this is practically unplayed or anything like he was like you know there's some wear but it like the way it was definitely just a I, I almost felt bad because I knew there was going to be somewhere, but it was it was truly unplayable. I was just like, look, this is like I would have paid this much for like a couple of crackles and, and pops like I don't even right. mind. Like, you know, there's maybe one bad scratch that you just kind of have to bump the turntable. It was like from beginning to end. Just this thing's busted. This <laughs> like, is busted. This is this is worthless to anyone. Like, I can't resell it. Yeah. Like you I know you back probably have you know no. you have money in it so like obviously I don't expect a full refund but <laughs> yeah I I mean I'm personally you know and I'm I'm a big kind of always been kind of a big record collector guy but I'm not as picky about the sleeve condition like I yeah. kind of I don't mind having like somewhere I don't you know I know that you know this record is as old as I am or whatever, you know, it's like you have a 30 year old record. You're not expecting the sleeve to be in terrible condition, but I do like, if I have a record, it has to be like playable. Like I have to be able to like, I can take some, some surface noise and stuff, but I'm not going to be, if it's like crackly the whole way through, it's going to drive me insane. (laughs) I'm not going to listen to it. You know, I've just, it's just not going to be played. And that's also what gets me out of like, there's certain genres of music where like, for example, jazz records or reggae records and stuff like that, you know, I'm not even really going to bother trying to seek out a lot of the originals of yeah. a lot of these records. Because for one thing, they're so expensive. But another thing is they get, you know, there's just too much surface noise that it will drive you insane. I'd rather just get like a cheaper reissue of yeah whatever john coltrane record or something you know like yeah. whatever it, is. it was a, it was actually a coltrane record that was unlistenable oh, it was probably yeah. a 60s pressing too it was definitely not yeah. like first pressing or anything like that but but yeah it's just like i there's anything dynamic like that anything yeah. that anything quiet the, the surface noise is going to overpower the music you're just like i can't listen to this i don't yeah. mind some sleeve wear there's even some kinds of like sleeve wear that i like like i yeah. love when people 
would like write Ring. their names on their records. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I like Ringwear, where you can see where the uh, the LP yeah. is in the sleeve. Totally. I um I have a copy of uh, Johnny Cash um, at Folsom Prison that my wife bought me. She like bought it off of eBay when we were dating in college, and like she so she didn't see it. She like ordered it on eBay and had it sent to my ha- our parents' house, my parents' house, mm-hmm. and like. I got the record and someone had like like with a pen, like just like a ballpoint pen had drawn sideburns onto Johnny's face on the <laughs> album cover. <laughs> just like, <laughs> And I'm just like, and she was like kind of upset about it. She's like, I wouldn't have, you know, if I had known it was on there, I wouldn't have given it to you. I was like, well, you can, you know, ask them for some money back because they didn't disclose that if it wasn't clear in the picture, like. Right. get a refund but like i don't mind that it's drawn on the cover like it's funny to me now like that's part of the record to me is that somebody drew sideburns on johnny cash yeah. that's my <laughs> copy of it it sounds great like it plays great so like i really can't complain <laughs> yeah especially like Folsom prison blues which is or live at Folsom prison i mean that that's so a, a loud live record like yeah. my copy of mc5s kick out the jams and my copy of mc5s um back in the usa like i got them you know i got my back in the usa for a dollar and it's like it's a loud record you know like if it's a loud like awesome record you're not going to notice any like surface noise you know it's 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 gonna be like it's gonna play awesomely you know it's like i'm i'm cool with that so and i love writing like i have an old copy of uh stooges funhouse that is like been like drawn all over and markered <laughs> and all this crazy stuff. So I have like a nice version of Funhouse that I bought like more modern era version of Funhouse. But then I have this this super, you know, some kid had it in his bedroom, you know, for years and just like what well, it was. It just has so much character. I love it. You know, I definitely have some records where people like they printed out their name and address on a little mm-hmm. stickers and put them on the sleeves or, or you can put them on the, uh, the label in the record. I definitely have a few records that like just... I found at like Goodwill or something where like I bought a handful of records at one time that all had the same person's name on them. Just, <laughs> yeah. They donated all their records. I love finding like poetry in records, like any, like anything that's left. Sometimes you'll just find like weird things. Uh, nowadays, like as my kids have been growing old, like when they were growing up, like all of their um, drawings that they made, you know, like all their art and stuff, I've put them in the records. So there's like, you'll you'll pick out a record you haven't listened to for five or 10 years or something. And there will be like one of your kids drawings in there, which I think is really cool. I like put the date on it. So it's like that, its own insert. <laughs> that actually reminded me, I, I have a copy of, uh, well, I have like a box set of the Lord of the Rings books that I found from the 70s. But like I have the copy of Fellowship right here where someone like there's like a check stub that they wrote their like daily schedule on. It's like dishes, awesome. 20 minutes, cabinets, 20 minutes, living room, 15 minutes. <laughs> but like <laughs> how much time they're going to spend on cleaning their apartment. And then there's like I think there's like a recipe in here, too, on like some uh, just a sheet of paper. It's like, well, I, that's going to be in that book for the rest of my life, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a little little bonus thing. One time, um, Hal Shaddad did a uh, uh, a zine that was a cookbook zine um, <laughs> that we were one of the bands. I wish I still, I think I'd have to figure out if I still have it, but it was all these different bands submitted their recipes. So <laughs> like, 
you know, Captain Jazz and like their recipe for whatever. I can't remember what recipe, like Ben, uh, Ben Lukens, our bass player singer, he was probably the one who, you know, was the most like sort of, I'm vegan, I'm cooking all this stuff. I think he he submitted like a, a vegan recipe of some kind for for the Hal Shaddad page of it. But I thought that was really funny to have like a, a a vegan cookbook zine that every page was a different band's <laughs> recipe. Which which totally makes sense too, because there are so many like vegetarians and vegans in like punk and hardcore like that. So yeah. Yeah. It's actually really like, oh man, that'd be really cool. I'd like to see what <laughs> what recipes are in there. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'll try to f- I'll see if I can find it. Cause I think like it was one of those things when, you know, Ben or Ed or me were like moving and then we come across like a bin of just stuff and and I think Ben found a bunch just recently and sent me all these pictures of things I'd never seen before, like pictures from the record that were never used, like all these little surveillance photos. He has all the original prints of all of them and and, and a lot that were never used. So I, I want to see them again because they're like, I have no memory of some of the stuff that we were <laughs> doing. Um, but I think he found the the recipe book as well, which would be which should be cool to see. Yeah, that, that's, that'd be an interesting thing to because we have a buddy hugo reyes he's a writer and uh he has recently been like buying zines off ebay like old zines and then like scanning them and uploading them online just to look at them like he's in chicago so there's a lot of chicago centric zines that he's been pulling and there's just some really cool interesting stuff in there because like zines are like they're so like of the moment and like yeah once they're out there they're out there and like nobody's keeping those in in print you know really unless you that's your full-time job is like a print you know, zine maker, which whose yeah. job is that? You know, that's pretty or, rare. Yeah. They're like anarchist zines where it's like, this is the yeah. same yeah. information that we always use. So we just keep the one in print. Yeah. I have, um, like crime thinking. Gavin, when you'd buy stuff from stick figure, Gavin would always put zines and things into, into the record. So I have a lot of my old, like nineties records still have zines inside that either I bought at the distro at that time at the show and put into the record and kept, and, and they're really funny. They're just, I mean, it's just such great, like almost like folk art, you know, of the time. There's this guy, Randy Goo, who is one of um, he was like a hardcore kid back in the 80s in Atlanta uh, within the kind of circle of people within the neon Christ scene. So he's older than me, but he um, became a, you know, a library. He's he's like the head of like this library at Emory University and he created a punk archive at Emory and 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 he has a zine archive so he's taken all zines from all eras and it's just this massive archive he took he takes all original flyers and and all like artifacts records from all from mainly from Atlanta but um it's really cool like as far as I like that he he thinks in that way like as an archivist and he's like no, this this is culturally significant stuff that I'm I'm going to you know preserve you know as far as the history of Atlanta or the history of like this era of you know amuse you know music and and kind of DIY culture from that time. That's it's really cool. And that stuff can get lost so easily. And like once that yeah. little ephemeral tiny piece of you know merch or or zine is gone. Like it's gone yeah. for good. Like it, 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 then it just becomes like people who remembered it, maybe be like, yeah, there was a zine that was pretty cool, but like people's memories are faulty, you know, and it's not the exact same thing of being like being able to flip through it yourself. So 
Yeah, I'm Those a big fan like of that. 30 copies or whatever that they made, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I try to I try to save that stuff when I get it. Like I have a definitely have a lot of stuff that just got jammed in the, you know, the mailers from like Count Your Lucky Stars and Square of Opposition, you know, all of those labels that were that I was buying stuff from a lot. I just have a bag full of the the little things that got stuck in there, like stickers, little yeah. here's other records that we're putting out, you know, those things. I just keep them because I'm like, this is going to be gone if I don't keep it. Like, yeah, who knows amazing. who else has it? I have all this old um, anti-Olympic stuff from when the Olympics was in Atlanta from, from 1996. So that was a big thing. There was a lot of uh, anti-Olympic kind of zines and flyers and things like that. And we had a mascot called Spoil Sport. So it's like <laughs> Spoil Sport is against the Atlanta Olympics. And this is going to do the, there, there's just a lot of crappy things, you know, it's yeah. sort of like, when the when the Olympics comes to your town, it sort of changes the town, you yeah. know, sort of permanently. And there's a lot about Atlanta. I think that changed from from 1996 onwards is like a different Atlanta is a different town than it was before, I would say, 1996. But then again, like every town has every city has this kind of somewhat unrecognizable, <laughs> you know, in a sense. It, we we sort of live in the future nowadays, so it's yeah. it's kind of strange. Yeah, but it makes LA's you think about that, those no? those yeah. things that uh, in that time period, like the things that still exist today that were from that time. That's I like that. That's like really to me. That's really special. You know, whatever it whatever it is. You know, you kind of have to preserve what what's left, or you know, kind of celebrate it. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've been talking for almost an hour and we've yet to touch on the oh, album. No. So I know <laughs> you can edit this as much as you want, of course, you know, no, no, it's free to bounce around <laughs> it's a good convo. Uh, so let's get into, I guess the rest of the show up. Uh, you can get the record, the reissue of the house self-titled. You can get that from noise, real records. I'll have a link to that in the show notes and uh, yeah, very, very fun conversation around all that. So now let's get into the meat of the show, I, I guess is how I'll put it. But so the premise of the show is we sign our guests a year and they choose one punk or punk adjacent album from that year for us to discuss. And yep. I gave you the year 1979 because when I first started talking to you, I said, what range of times is, is uh, you know, you're most interested in? You said from the 60s to like the end of the 90s or like the early two, beginning of the 2000s. Yeah. And I was like. Well, most of our guests never say the 70s, so let's go to the 70s. So I gave you 79, and uh, before we get into the record that uh, we are going to talk about today, what are some other records from that year that you were considering for us to talk about? My God, I, I was shocked because you sent me this list of like all the kind of punk and adjacent alternative, you know, new wave, whatever, you know, kind of interesting records from 1979 and i was i couldn't believe i mean it you go through the list i mean we're talking about you know joy division unknown pleasures london calling clash fear of music talking heads gang of four entertainment i almost thought about gang of four entertainment because i i really think gang of four i feel like most post-punk music you know from fugazi onwards 
kind of owes almost everything to Gang of Four. Like, I feel like they really set the template for what sort of post-punk music, especially the entertainment album and, and uh, uh, Solid Gold. I mean, I, I just, I, I think that's an incredibly significant album kind of musically for, for all the music that we love, you know, from since then. The first Cure record, Wire 154, Metal Box Pill. I mean, every one of these is an amazing record. I almost said B-52s. The first B-52s record was was a an important record. Just because I live in Atlanta, um, B-52s technically were an Athens band before they moved to New York. Um, they really put Athens on the map musically. I mean, they were kind of the first ones to, to really, nobody knew what Athens, Georgia was before the B-52s in a way, um, especially from a music perspective. So I thought that would be nice to talk about. But I think we, and the other thing that I was shocked about was that both the first two fall records come, came out in 1979, Live at the Witch Trials and Dragnet, which blows my mind because I was thought of Live at the Witch Trials being a little earlier than 79, but maybe it was the U.S. pressing. I don't know, but could be. it could be. But I think if that's just talk about like a, a one-two punch of your first two records being in the same year. I mean, it's just an amazing year for 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 records. Um, but the one I settled on was the second Devo record, or the second Warner Brothers Devo record, because they had records before they were signed to to Warner Brothers. But uh, uh, Duty Now for the Future, the second Devo record, is the one I I settled on for this this episode specifically. Yeah, yeah. So you you chose Duty Now for the Future by Devo. on the record i like to call them so devo were from akron ohio and they formed in 1973 and this is the band's second full-length studio album i guess you could call the earlier stuff kind of rough all over the place demos almost (laughs) and it was released june 1st on warner brothers records and the personnel on this record is mark mothersbaugh on vocals keys and guitar gerald casal on vocals bass and keys bob mothersbaugh on guitar and vocals Bob Casal on guitar, keys and vocals, and Alan Myers on drums. And the record was produced by Ken Scott. So we'll get into a little Do bit. Do you know who Ken point. Scott is? So the little bit of research I did on Ken Scott uh, was that he had previously worked with David Bowie. And he'd done Aladdin Sane and uh, Pink Spiders from Mars. Yeah. Yeah. He did Hunky Dory. He did um, the, um, the Man Who Sold the World. It always blew my mind that this was the producer of the second uh, of the second Devo record because he also came from the Beatles. He he was yeah. the engineer on all these Beatles records as well. It, he was one of the Abbey Road engineers. Yeah. <clears throat> How did they? I mean, and I, and I it, it 
the, the choices of producers has always been strange to me with Devo because their first album was produced by Brian Eno mm-hmm. yeah. at Connie Plank's studio. And, and honestly, Eno said, you know, I, I didn't even produce the record. Like Devo really produced the record. Like they yeah. were so like focused on what they wanted everything to sound like. They sort of forced themselves, like they forced it into, into being. And so this second record you know, produced by Ken Scott. It's like, well, how did they get connected to Ken Scott? And then I thought about, oh, it was probably because of Bowie, you know, being the producer, him yeah. being the producer of all those Bowie records and Bowie, Bowie being such a big fan of Devo, it probably said, well, why don't you use my producer, you know, from the seminal, his run of albums. I mean, you think about from uh, The Man Who Sold the World through Aladdin Sane, it's, it's like, that's a, that's a run that's, untouchable um and maybe you know we'll see what ken can do with them but it's a it's an interesting record for sure it's i would say traditionally been one of my i'd say nowadays new traditionalists might be my favorite record of devos but um this was my this is kind of my my favorite of their sort of early ish material because everything on those first two records was written in ohio before they had moved to la and basically was their their original set of music was the first album and this album kind of combined together. And they just kind of split. I mean, they could have done a double album as their first album, but they just sort of split it in two to have two, you know, basically these are all in a way kind of like the B sides of what were the A sides on the first album in a way. It's yeah, interesting, yeah. the Ken Scott production thing, because like you mentioned with Eno and Eno, like definitely is like, oh, yeah, they did all of it. Like they knew what they wanted it to be. And you listen to that record and you listen to the record that we're talking about and you think like, what could Ken Scott have possibly have done to this? I know. Like, and it, it's more than likely he just kind of sat back and hit record because after that, after the second Evo record, there's really no producers like there's engineers credit, yeah. but it's Devo it, is the producer on everything else. So it's it's very much a case of they're like, no, we know exactly what we want to do. Uh, we just like don't have the clout, <laughs> I guess, or maybe right. didn't feel confident running, telling the engineers what to do as the artists, maybe. And that's where like a producer could be helpful. It's probably Warner Brothers maybe kind of said, look, you need a producer. Yeah. And and so his, you know, Ken probably engineered it, but you're right. Like Devo produced themselves. They were so, they're so like just singular minded. And they're also very like wary of outsiders. They're like such a yeah. this insular Midwestern group. I mean, it's such a like, I think about Akron, Ohio, and I just think about these guys just being so, you know, they've been around since 73, you know, now it's 79 and they're making this you know, their second major label album. And they're just like, I, I, I would imagine they're just so mistrustful and kind of paranoid. Uh, it, almost that kind of, it, it's almost this like Midwestern sensibility of this sort of closed, you know, these are, these are very like, this is a very tight knit closed group of guys, always just the five of them. And they never really like collaborated with very many people. Like I think Neil Young was about the closest that they ever really yeah. kind of, they they let them into their circle, but they're such a, you know, they're on their own little island in a way Devo's always been, um, which is kind of a shame because I feel like they could, their creativity, if they were more collaborative with people, they would have probably 
done some really interesting things and not like they didn't and they did they did amazing you know art and and you know multimedia stuff and all their ideas were amazing but i feel like they almost like restricted themselves a bit you know when they could have they could have been more if they had been more open to Eno and and sort of collaborating in a way with him like it could have been more like what the talking heads sort of yeah. became like <laughs> devo could have been a little bit more that direction or something but they were they they were who they were i mean they were kind of like a fully formed you know band that sort of did what they wanted to do so i do have a little insight on the ken scott and devo relationship so uh, I read about this. So Ken Scott, he talked about how much he, how much fun he had working with Devo and he thought they were extremely professional. Like Ken Scott, by all accounts, loved it. Had a great time with them. The band now, they think that he ruined the record. (laughs) Okay. Like, I wonder what he did. Like I said, what, what, what could have been done differently on this? So one of the things that they were, they were critical about was, so they wanted to kind of like capture the album, capture their like live sound in studio like they like the first record kind of has that feel and they really wanted to put that into the studio but ken wanted the band to do a more processed and like lean into the more robotic and electronic Mm -hmm. side of the band because this was a big pivot record for them as far as using synths more than guitars right and so he was like we need to lean into this we need to be like let's do more you know i guess he's probably thinking more like gary newman or Kraftwerk type stuff maybe I mean, so, Replicas came out the same year. So right, you're yeah. thinking like that's a, almost like a sister album to this. It's a Gary Newman Replicas album. So they were mad that he made them record each instrument by itself, like tracking each instrument <laughs> individually instead of live in the studio. And he, they were mad that they made them, made them use a click track to those songs too, which yeah. I find incredibly hilarious because we did an episode on R.E.M.'s Life's Rich pageant. And the producer they had on that was the guy who did like the big John Mellencamp records of the 80s. And right. he was the guy who was like, we're using a click track on all these songs and you're mm-hmm. going to enunciate more. So and, and the band at the time was like, Ugh, I don't I don't want to. I want to be live. Yeah. Studio. yeah. <laughs> and so like, I just think it's really funny when bands like he made us use a click track. And it's like, I don't know. It's, it's a different way of recording music, but it it has its merits, too, you know. It's funny that the that doing proper overdubs and click using a click track and using more synthesizers are the things that the band hated about the record, but that right. that's the direction that they go in on their self-produced records <laughs> afterwards. They're like almost nothing but synthesizers. And like eventually Alan, like what he like leaves the band because he's like, you're just going to use a drum machine anyway. Right. <laughs> like it's like, what's the point of me even being here? Yeah, funny. I think I, I think it is interesting because you're you're thinking that just from a practical perspective, if you have all the sequence stuff that you're working with and you're layering all these synths and you're doing all this other stuff, it's like you're almost like you're going to have to play to a click track, you know, eventually. And you're going to have to do I mean, for them, I'm sure, like if they had Pro Tools, you know, developed at that time, they would have just like put everything in and like just copied and pasted stuff all over the place. You know, they would have, mm-hmm. they would have probably loved all that. They've been the, the pioneers of that technology. So it's, it is interesting that you're saying that they like, they almost wanted it to be more organic and more live sounding. And, and, and he was pushing against that, but that's the way they, they sort of, that that's the direction that they totally headed in after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, 
It's very funny how I guess like he saw what they were going for. And he's like, you can't just willy nilly do this a lot. You know, you, you need to actually like time this stuff out perfectly so that it works together. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a mess. I think that it's uh, well, I think the synthesis. Uh, I know Mark definitely pushed them more towards synthesizers. I think that's something that was already mm-hmm. they were already moving in that direction because he was interested in it. So it's probably the other guys in the band. I think it's Bob one Bob mother's law his his brother. I feel like Bob one has always been the, like the rocker of the band. He was the one who always kept the guitar. Like when everybody else is going to guitars and, and, and synths just standing at synth stations. And even now when you see them, you know, he is the one that always has had a six string guitar of some sort. He's always played. Um, He's, he's the, he's the, the, the rock element that they, you know, they'll never let go. I think that they're, yeah, I think this album itself is is really an interesting album, you know, as far as Devo is concerned. And and I mean, I I started listening to them when I was 15, I think. And it was this album and the first the first two albums for sure were the big the big albums of mine. So I mean, they go back to early childhood being into into what they were doing, because those these were the records that you could find, you know, sort of in your in your suburban record store and there was a a video store that we had uh that had the the men who make the music doc whatever you call it their movie that they made i don't know if you've ever seen that but it's a really amazing you know it's basically a collection of all their homemade you know all the jago homo era stuff from akron as well as the live uh, like a lot of live footage from around the first album and they had that that video, and they had um, X, the unheard music video uh, cassette, and I rented them all the time, and uh, I became a huge fan of Devo from that time onwards. And you know, has always been from a drumming perspective, Alan Myers is is like a, a hero of mine. I mean, the, the drumming he does on all the Devo records, you know, all, all the way through has just been amazing. All the way through, I guess Shout, maybe Shout was the one that he he left on or yeah. total Devo, but yeah, Alan's, Alan's amazing. And, and to see them now with Josh freeze, I've seen them a lot seen. I saw them at the, um, the big LA fest cruel world. Yeah. I saw them. I saw them at the nine 30 club when they played the first album in its entirety, which is really fun. Uh, just different times. Um, when they played Atlanta and all that. So it's, it's nice to see, but I think Josh, uh, 
he's done a great job drumming with it as well. So it's interesting. So I was reading a lot about this record and a lot of the critical reviews and the reviews from around the same time period. And even, even like the pitchfork review from like not long ago, they're all very critical of this record. This record has the stigma of a, of a sophomore slump. Like it has the, the negative reputation that shockingly, like their later works are much more maligned and much more like just like, negatively reviewed so i'm i'm amazed at like how negative the, the writing around this record is because everyone talks about how they just, they just didn't live up to the expectations of that first record and the next record would be so much better than this one i think Yet it was it, just their decision i'm sorry go ahead I, no no no. i was i was go ahead I, I was just saying i think it's their decision that they you know because I, I i've read a few devo books and gerald casale he I remember when they were flying to or I think I remember it was like on a plane or something that they were deciding because they had, you know, 30 songs or whatever that they had written over the years that they could use, you know, as their first record. And they picked, you know, the songs that were going to be on the first Devo album, you know, Are We Not Men, We Are Devo. And then the rest of the songs were going to be on the second album. And I think maybe that was a that was a maybe not the best choice because several of these I remember you know they they were they've been they've been playing them for years. I think maybe they should have sort of started you know thought written some more new songs potentially you know for the second album. I could be wrong, but it there is a certain al- element of like I love the first two albums the most I would say, and the first album seems to have definitely has its share of weird songs, right? But it has a lot of their sort of early well-known hits. It has, you know, Uncontrollable Urge and Jocko Homo and their cover of Satisfaction and it has Gut Feeling. It also has, you know, Space Junk and and (laughs) other songs that are more, you know, goofy. Uh, Comeback Johnny, I love. Um, So that's like a solid album. It's almost like it's front-loaded a little bit because these seem to be a little bit of the scraps. But I like the scraps. Like I like uh, Clock Out. I love Wiggly World. I love, uh, I mean, Smart Patrol, Mr. DNA. I'm a big fan of the band The Digits uh, from Chicago. And their version of Mr. DNA is is just, I, I love it. It's, it made me like solidified my love of Devo was hearing the Digits cover of, of Mr. DNA. Um, and Secret Agent Man, I mean, that goes all the way back to really early Devo years, you know, that they, they put on this album and, and there's a lot of just, just weird songs, you know, like there's just, it's an interesting album. What I think it doesn't have all the, like the hits that you're known that you know them for. And like, you know, when, when you see them live now, I think the only out, the only song that I think they will play, they'll play secret agent man and they'll play um, smart patrol, Mr. DNA. Like those are the two songs from this album that they'll, they still play now uh, regularly, but like most of the others have been kind of lost to time, but I still, I still love them as really interesting, unique songs. You know, it's, it's like a more interesting listen to me for me. Like if I'm going to put on a record of theirs, I'll put on this one, honestly, uh, before I'll put on the first album or, or even, you know, freedom of choice is a great album, but it's just like, you just, it's just oversaturated, you know, like I, I, I just, I've heard 
freedom of choice. I love Gates of Steel. I love Whip It, whatever. But I think it's like I don't need to hear those songs another time in my life. I've heard them, you know, hundreds of times at this point, you know, so you're like just in general day-to-day life. But I feel like Duty Now for the Future has all these songs, you know, that are really great and weird, truly weird and interesting songs that they wrote. And and honestly, in a way, I kind of wish that they had continued making more weird, interesting songs. And I feel like them signing to Warner Brothers was almost a way of them they sort of got locked into that machine of like, well, now we have to like make a hit single. Now we have to make a, you know, a hit video. We have to be a hit band. Whereas if they had stayed maybe on a, on stiff records, you know, from their, their EP before this, uh, before the first album uh, or, or just stayed kind of in the independent circuit, it might've been interesting to see where they would have gone as a band. They might not have lasted very long. They may have only made another album or two, but who knows? Yeah, it's interesting because you have to I, I still maintain that they kept the, their weirdness in the major sure label did. sphere. You're, you're right. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I his, you know, for the greater good of like art and music and entertainment and everything, like it's probably best that they did sign because we have such a long history. Like we have what? How many years is that? Is that 50 years? You know, almost. Yeah, yeah they came up I mean, for 73. They hit 50 years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. And. We have 50 years of weird Devo, whereas if they'd stuck with like independent only stuff, like there's a chance they fizzle out in the 80s and like kind of become this niche thing that like only people who are real, you know, deep vinyl, you know, nerds will find this kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think I do truly appreciate that they've made they have always made really weird, deeply subversive songs. And I, and I, I really appreciate that's another reason why I love Devo is that, you know, they did do things in a sort of made mainstream way. They sort of broke into the mainstream. I mean, they're kind of, obviously they're like a cult band and, and everybody knows whip it, but I think that like, they definitely introduced a lot of this like true weirdness that they are, you know, into a lot of people's lives that otherwise would never have been exposed to their music. And I, and I have a theory that, that it's their Midwestern. I, I go back to like Ohio. Like I feel like Ohio makes true weirdos. In <laughs> like, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you think about the cramps, you think yeah. about Ubu, you think about, I mean, obviously like Brainiac or, or, you know, even other bands. I, I just, I, I feel like, Ohio, the Midwest and Ohio especially has generated some true music, musical weirdos. And and Devo is like a perfect example of that, you know? Yeah. It's the, like it's in their blood. The hostile environment, the <laughs> the relative like kind of isolation, you know, being passed over culturally, the the um the industrial sort the, of like Cleveland and Akron. Yeah, it being such a yeah center of of industry, like attracting so many people and so many people live there, but it's kind of just like its own little weird little bubble of of passive aggressive people. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, yeah, no, uh, no, it's not New York City, it's not LA, you know, it's no coastal elite uh, yeah. kind of culture, and the people just get to the people that are like, well, I want to make stuff are like. What is there to 
talk about. Well, <laughs> capitalism's evil. Potatoes are neat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they just make such those. I think just there's such interesting music and, and, and yeah, I agree. Like I look at East coast, like New York and punk and, and, and all that kind of stuff, very cerebral, very, and also very artistic kind of high-minded art, not like, you know, whatever. But I think that there's, there's sort of a, a, a sort of an art, art, arty, like elitism to, to New York bands in a way, you know, and thinking about it like a television or something like that. Yeah. And then West Coast, you have all of the great, you know, West Coast punk and 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 sort of a a a fun or a a you know kind of this this sort of California vibe going to the to the music, you know, that that has this its own spirit. But then I feel like the Midwest just brings just just like you know all the Chicago bands, Minneapolis bands, Ohio bands. You just have this like string of just really sh- deeply strange and 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 weird bands and and just real truly like insular weirdos you know coming from these these areas which i love i mean i love all of it so i almost feel like you know what would happen also if devo never moved to la you know because i think yeah. they they sort of got a lot of uh, la you know transformed them i think from freedom of choice onwards so you know, once again, it's all, it's all what if. thinking about the b-52s too because you mentioned them as being one of your options and i know they moved to new york and that's really where a lot of their exposure came from but in my mind they're still very much the athens band like that that is what they are at their core because that's where they you know started and and came up and even thinking about them in the context of the south like one you know they have gay members of the band and so they're tapping into an entire other like (laughs) part of subculture basically of america especially in the 70s that's completely unique to what devo is doing too they're doing their own thing in in a more their whole philosophy that they came up with so but even b52s play very weird music that it's kind of kitschy like it's like a throwback in some ways but even they have that that just that hint of being like we're weirdos from the south and you know we're putting out some challenging music in a in a fun, little more over the top way than Devo. Maybe. I don't. They're different kinds of over the top because Devo is definitely over the top, but B fifty twos are more camp, I guess. Is, is yeah. what you would go with that. But I think I'm sure. Um, but yeah, oh. but uh, it, musically subversive too. Like because B fifty twos are doing, yeah, they're doing so much like 50s, 60s, you know, throwback stuff. But Ricky Wilson's playing in like open guitar tunings and yeah. you know they're 
they're they're um i mean and and ricky and cindy they came from athens originally like they were from they're born and bred and that's also interesting when i think about that because athens is such a a transplant type city town like they they all because of UGA and, and the college and, and all the, all the REM guys came from different places and came to, uh, came to, um, came to Athens, but that was, yeah, they were, I think, I think about probably back then you would think B-52s and Devo were sort of like synonymous with each other to a certain extent, you know, in that kind of thinking about both those bands sort of being around at the same time, second Devo album, first b52s album and both of them kind of having dancey elements sort of guitar-y but kind of quirky definitely arty but it, it is it is interesting they probably would have been i don't know if they ever like shared a bill together or anything it would have been interesting to think about them being on the same show together sometimes but uh or crossing paths or whatever but it would have been uh i i yeah, I, I do think that there's they're sort of cut from a similar cloth in a way, you know, with Devo actually being extremely like focused and having a like these are like art school guys, you know, yeah, making yeah. music. They're an they're an art project. B-52s are, yeah, like campy art art, but also from like a thrift store culture you know, mm-hmm. and, and kind of grabbing what's around you and making something, you know, amazing out of it and, and something beautiful out of, you know, this repurposing of things around them, kind of taking elements of like surf music and like, I don't know, exotica and weird dance music and all this other stuff and just having a party, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to kind of compare and contrast those two bands because like, Devo's not about having a party, yeah. <laughs> you know, like these <laughs> are having a party and uh, it's, but, but they're both just such, you know, seminal bands that both kind of came from, you know, around the same period and had kind of, kind of, there's some, definitely some similarities between the two. Yeah. Devo records can, yeah. Devo records are f- certainly fun, but you're, you're listening like these are very neurotic people. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just just these guys are not letting loose. I mean, or at least in the way that they are letting loose is kind of like that's a little unnerving. Like, yeah, I, I I'm uncomfortable often while listening to Devo and I love Devo. But you just like they do things and you're just like, this is the most unhinged thing a person could think <laughs> of. It's like I I don't know how you arrive at these conclusions. Yeah, I, I think and, and still make it accessible. That's the real balancing act is what's impressive. But it, it, it's it's just the art that they created. I can't even imagine what, what it must have been like to be sort of like in their company. You know, it's like, who would you rather hang out with? You know, <laughs> I mean, would you hang out with, like obviously the B-52s would be would be amazing. You know, you think about hanging out with them in New York or something, uh, being part of that scene. The Mandevo scene, that would be a weird, you know, that would, they, they seem like they would be an interesting crew to spend time with, you know, like the, the, D, the Devo party. There's a bowl of chips on the table that you don't know if you're supposed to eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, I feel like they would definitely like mess with you. There's a lot of like, <laughs> you know, 
it seems like they they would really like to push push buttons you know they definitely like to keep you on edge a little bit <laughs> they, they they that's part of their their entertainment is uh is is definitely in that that side of things with with devo especially i mean i i don't know my i i remember when um devo played in atlanta and the black lips opened i haven't i i, I need to talk to some of those guys about or or just get information about hanging out with them because they were talking about how backstage with them and stuff and i just feel like it would be such a bizarre environment to be in you know hanging around with those guys it's funny i have not met but i have served mark um from devo twice he's he's come into the restaurant that i work at um oh, cool. a couple of times and the first time he was there it was really shortly after I started working there and uh, Julia Louise Drivers was also there. She had like a huge party. She had like 14 people. I put cornbread in front of her. She was very nice. She was like, oh, that looks lovely. Um, <laughs> like, you seem like a nice person, like a genuinely nice person. And then like I saw Mark in the restaurant later, a little bit later. And it was like, is that is that him? Is that Mark from Devo? And as I kept looking at him and I kept walking through the restaurant and like running food back and forth. And there, it finally like. I had looked at him enough times that he kind of like looked at me and we yeah. made eye contact and he gave me like the, you know, the psychic message of like, don't, <laughs> not, <laughs> please don't talk to me. Not right now. <laughs> just, I just want to eat. <laughs> and it was, which was like, I'm not going to like approach anyone at a table. It is, it's just, I'm not that amazed whenever I see a celebrity, it's kind of just like, Oh, that's neat. You know? <laughs> You didn't go up to no, him and be like, here's your plate of spuds that yeah. you ordered? <laughs> well, this, the funny thing is the second time he came in, he came in with Tony Hawk, who I <laughs> did the thing where you don't recognize Tony Hawk. I completely didn't recognize him. Everyone said it was Tony Hawk later. I was like, oh, shit, it was. <laughs> and like Rodney Mullen and Shepard Ferry was there. And there might have been somebody else. Another like, so it was like the it's world of true. skateboarding yeah. and like art guys all and mark mother's ball and mark <laughs> mother's ball was there and so i recognized him immediately the second time and i put i brought a bowl of potatoes to the table because we have oh just God. fried potatoes on the menu and like i put them in front of mark and he goes <laughs> what is that like i said what it was but he didn't hear me he goes what was that and it was i i cannot <laughs> believe i didn't just yell spuds like, i'm shocked that i managed to control myself because it just popped into my head immediately because like he's not gonna like that like it was I, I mean, like i had that whole conversation well, in my you head never know. a second i was like do i say it no i shouldn't say it <laughs> it's just potatoes i'm so oblivious like i would never i would never it could be all those people at a table together and it would just never connect with me who any of them <laughs> You know, I'm like, I'm just, I'm terrible at like recognizing people. The only person that I think about sometimes is in similar situation was that um, I had to go to Iceland for work and I saw Bjork <laughs> in Iceland in the hotel that we were staying in. And, and when we, and, and even the people I was with who, who aren't like music fans or whatever, they were like, that's Bjork over there. And so we started to approach her. Cause you're just like, who else could it be? You know, like somebody like that, you're like, you're going to see her. You're going to be like, who that's Bjork, you know, anyway. And she instantly targeted us and was like, no, <laughs> like she was like, she was like, just no, this is, 
personal time, personal time. Don't <laughs> leave. Not now, not today or whatever. You know, we we're like, okay, okay. <laughs> and if like anyone, and if anyone was going to be drawing lines like that, it would be her, you know, what with yeah. the history of her, her fans. I, I'm, I'm yeah. respecting her privacy. I'm respecting yeah. her space. She's, <laughs> she had some sort of meeting or something. And we got onto a bus because we were going to some like touristy thing. And the bus driver said, ah, if you may have noticed uh, one of our local celebrities, Bjork is, is at the hotel. And you notice that I'm, I used, I call her by her current, you know, her, her real pronunciation is Bjork because it <laughs> rhymes with jerk. <laughs> and we were like, okay, it's Bjork then. So, <laughs> Which that's, and kind of unnecessarily unfair to her she may be like truly awful and like actually rude to people but like i think it's not unfair to just draw that line and be like no don't don't do that let's because i think of like henry rollins always has the the reputation of being like he's really rude to people and it's like are you sure you weren't just like yelling get in the van at him from like (laughs) across the street like I don't think that's a, a rude reaction to be like, hey, leave me alone. I'm doing something right now. I read one of Henry's books. It was one of the it was like the book he wrote when the Rollins band reunited and they went on tour with X. And so it's like a tour diary book that also taps into some of his international travel stuff. But there's a there's a part in one of the books where he says he's walking through the airport. Some guy sees him, recognizes him as Henry Rollins and just goes, what are you doing here? And then Henry's response back was, what are you doing here? Like <laughs> yelling it back at him. Like I'm at the airport. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> and then they become best friends. <laughs> I don't like, know that Henry has very many friends that no. aren't, aren't <laughs> Ian Mackay. <laughs> and Heidi. <laughs> Anybody he knew in DC before he left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anybody from before 1981 is yeah. <laughs> extended as friends. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I didn't hold. I, I definitely, I'm always super. Just you know, and anybody like that, I'm either I, I don't know who they are, I don't recognize them, yeah. I don't make two and two together. Even like friends of mine, if I see them in an environment that I'm not expecting to see them, it like won't register. I don't know what's <laughs> wrong with my brain, but it's like I don't. I'll like it'll take me a second. It'll be a person I've seen. You know, I see every you know like for years but always in like this one place like where they work at this bar or something yeah. and then i'll see him at the grocery store and it'll just like i don't know i there's something about my brain that just short circuits in that way so i'm like in the end probably i, I don't recognize famous people at all and i just let them live their lives so it kind of reminds me when uh i've told the story on the show before i think but we we went to fest one year and my glasses broke that year and so I had had to go to Lens Crafters. There's like a Lens Crafters nearby where we were staying. And luckily they could do it in an hour like, you know, they say they can. And so I was able to get new glasses within a day. And I, uh, me and my friend were walking through to pick them up, like after I'd already left and come back to get them. And we ran into Jim from the band The Fake Boys, who are a Boston punk band. And it was like him and his wife were walking through the mall, too. And it was so surreal because we were at a music festival and you don't mm-hmm. expect to see people that like are also at the music festival just in a regular shopping mall, like a regular standard ass mall. And it was we, we were 
all four of us are kind of like thrown off by just like oh hey hey it's it's weird we're here in front of like a sparrow and a starbucks like in instead of meeting each other in line at a at a show or you know at the merch table at a booth so you know somewhere but right it is, it, it's once you change the background around the person is when it makes it just like very strange interaction with them it's very surreal i i was in um I went to school at UGA in Athens uh, for the first year of college, and uh, that was in 1993. And um, Wuck Street Records is the is the main record store there. It's been there since 1976 or whatever. And um, so I was in there record shopping, and like Kurt Cobain and you know all the guys from Nirvana and Michael Stipe come in because what happens is is when big bands like that would play Atlanta. Like they would all go and hang out with Michael Stipe in in Athens. And so you'd see them, like you'd see them at the restaurant, uh, the Grit, you know, which is a restaurant that he was used to own or be part of an owner of, or see them, you know, see them in Wuck Street or whatever. So, but it was just funny because it's just like, a, you know, two in the afternoon and and I, I, they had played the night before in Atlanta and I didn't, I remembered later, like, but just, you're just kind of looking through records and you're like, who are these people that came in? <laughs> like it didn't register that that was like there was Kurt Cobain, there was Courtney Love, they had their baby with them, they had <laughs> Dave Grohl, whatever, and 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 Michael Stipe. So that was also that was also the connection. It's like, oh well, there's Michael Stipe. So then you know these are people. But for some reason, I didn't realize that it was it was Nirvana, and um and just you know sort of finished and walked out. And then like the people I was with was like, oh, was Nirvana over there, like in that record store. And it was just like, it didn't register for me because it wasn't like you're expecting these people to come through the door. You know, you just see like, oh, there, there's some real weirdos like sort of walking <laughs> in the door or whatever. So, but it was fine. They, they seem to be, you know, I left them alone as, yeah. you know, as I mean, the nice thing to do. That's the nice thing. I mean, cause really in all reality, like, what are you going to do? Be like, t- uh, now I guess you have cell phones. You'd be like, take a picture with me. And it's like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. look, I, I forced them to take a picture with me. It's like, yeah, cool. They probably weren't happy about that. <laughs> you know, I need to be able to prove that I saw them. And it's like, well, I mean, like, you can just say that you saw them. Like, I, I don't know that yeah. people have like, a, <laughs> why are going to be people going to disbelieve that you saw this person that was in town? Oh, he's always lying about seeing celebrities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, Whenever Fugazi would come in, they would Michael Stipe would always bring, and they all four of them would be like sort of in the same situation. Like you just see like, well, Fugazi's in town. There's everybody, you know. There's Guy. There's Brendan. There's Ian. There's Joe. There's Michael Stipe. You know, we're all having dinner before the show, so you're always like, ugh. But the the funny thing happened, and and I know this this is this is a really kind of weird evil thing and but just the way your mind works is that i after that happened like after we left the record store and they were they were in records um like in wuck street or whatever and i i got in my car and i pulled out and i'm i'm driving up to the record store and they all cross the street in front of me and for a split second you know this back of your mind thing is it's like what if i ran them all over like, what if i was like i could be like lee harvey oswald like <laughs> I, if I had, I could have just, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's like a terrible thought, but just like the way your brain works and you're just like, oh my God, that would have like changed music. You would have destroyed 
REM, Nirvana, and whole, <laughs> I mean, everything in one swoop, it would have been just unbelievable. So it's just this weird thing that popped in my mind. And I could, I could be the guy. It could be the guy who causes the next, the day the music died. <laughs> I know you would have been like the plane that killed Bobby <laughs> Holly and Richie Valens. Would have been. It, I mean, it just is like this weird thing that flashed in my mind because I was like, they were walking across the street and I was kind of driving at them. And it could have been one of those things like in the moment I could have just floored it and seen what happened, you know? <laughs> what if my accelerator got stuck? Yeah. I know. How fast can Guy Picciotto run? Right. You know, how, like what? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's just like this, you know, those, those evil things that go into your mind, you know, in, in a flash. So. <clears throat> well, I guess we should probably wrap up here. Any, I, we've kind of been all over the place with this record, but any like final thoughts on this record in particular? I, I think people, you know, I, I, I think it gets, I don't think people really give it the credit it deserves. I really think of it. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting album. I think it gets eclipsed by the first album and the third album in that sense, you know? So, because those are two such seminal albums that they're, everybody's going to like put down you know, duty now for the future. But I I really think it's there in a way to me, the most interesting album of songs that are just, you know, sort of strange and kind of stick out and and in different ways. And and there's a few hits on it, you know, but I do I, I do agree it's a software it's sophomore slump. Um, but I do think it's the it it is it is a better album than people think it is. I I definitely slept on this one in their discography. And I remember getting into Devo and kind of working my way through most of their records kind of in, in succession. And and this one, when you go from the first record to this one to the third one pretty close to each other, it is really easy to overshadow the second one. Taking the second one out of the context of, of it and listening to it and then it, like listening to it as being like well i've listened to it you know so many other diva records so many more times and this one like stuck in my yeah. memory as being ah, that's the skippable one to come back to it out of context and just like really focus on it individually i'm like this should not be skipped over this is a great record um it's unique in their discography because it feels like the first record in terms of songwriting but then yeah. sounds more like the third record in terms of production and that's super unique in their discography. There's really no records that sound like this. Other records by them that sound like this. Um, and there's killer songs on it. I mean, there's tons of great songs. Clock Out, Wiggly World, Blockhead, Swelling Itching Brain, Triumph of the Will. I mean, there's... Yeah. It's wild. I'm surprised that Dave, my baby, gave me a surprise. Wasn't... I mean, I know there's a video for it. Yeah. It's a pretty cool video and and... That was also on the men who make the music. The first one of first exposure I had to Devo was 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 that song. And I'm surprised it wasn't like I mean, it is a strange song. It's a strange video, but it's it's very it has a great like pop sensibility. Like it could have been sort of a a pop song in a way, but I don't think it was ever. I mean, I know it was a single off of this album, but uh, I think it's an amazing song. I think a lot of the songs on this album are, like I said, they're not so overplayed and so oversaturated as some of the other Devo yeah. songs and albums that you know so well. So it's kind of like a nice, there are bands that like, I do like the the in-between albums in a way because they, they're they just still f- a bit fresher to me, you know? Yeah. 
over years and years and years of listening to certain bands. Yeah, it, this record just it doesn't have the distinction of being first or being, you know, the record that has the pop hit, you know, the the pop hit. But the record is actually like incredible. You know, it's it doesn't really have a hit. It doesn't really have a story. The story is that the band doesn't really like it <laughs> themselves. So, but it, it's it's really good. I mean, it's it's still a great it's a it's a Devo record. I mean, I think it, I love all of their records, you know, up until Shout, I think that's where it sort of after Shout, I sort of drop off, you know, a few songs here and there. But man, th- their first five records, if you think about, you know, uh, are we not men? We are Devo. Um, you know, this one, you got freedom of choice, you got new traditionalists and you got, Oh no, it's Devo. I mean, between those five records, it's a, it's a, that's a solid batch of albums. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't think there's a significant dip in quality anywhere in the, that first five records. Yeah. And that, and that's a good, that's as good a run as you can, as you can have. You think about the first four black Sabbath records, you think about four, four to five, David Bowie records in a row. You think about Devo records in in a run like this. Um, you know that's that's uh, that's a that's all you can ask for. So I appreciate it. I like I like this album a lot. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we were able to 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 dip into Devo and and to talk about them and and what crazy people they must be. <laughs> um, I mean, total total just one of a kind people and band and, and i i hope i get to see them again because i know they're at the very end of their sort of playing live you know out there i think they're kind of in their their victory lap as a band so hopefully they come somewhere i'll their band i've always just traveled to see too so i i'm fine with that yeah. i just gotta find the right time and place the only the only current upcoming dates they have are our festivals. They have Beach Life yeah. Festival in Redondo and then Punk Rock Bowling. And my wife almost bought me tickets to the the one in Redondo. Uh and, I, and it was it was just like we couldn't make it work. But I'm hoping I mean I love seeing them in in when they're like a headlining band for a show. But I agree. I don't think they're gonna be I think they're always from from here on out, whenever you see them, it's gonna be part of a festival, yeah. which is kind of unfortunate because they're only gonna play like a 45 minute set, maybe and as much as they play like the same, they kind of play the same 20 songs. There's a few that get kind of thrown in. I think that's great. Like last time I saw them, they played secret agent man from, from this album. And it was, and I love it. I mean, I love it. It's such a great cover and it's sung by Bob one instead of Mark or Jer. And it's, um, it's so fun, you know, so stuff like that. I, I, I like, I still love what, kind of even seeing Devo now is, is a, a real treat. Well, we know you've got to go, but, Thank yep. you so, so much for uh, doing the show with us. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want us to to follow up on? Um, I'm well, I mean, well, it's so I, I we have the Hal Shaddad reissue uh, the first album out on Noise Real Records. Um, definitely uh, check that out. It's streaming everywhere so people can can hear it. I'm in a, a band called Blood Circuits uh, that plays really the Atlanta area, but we're releasing an album uh, for streaming pretty soon. Well, five songs, but you know how it goes. It's like 25 minutes and five songs. And, uh, and we'll see if we, if we press any, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put it out there, but you can find uh, blood circuits around and um, yeah, 
I appreciate the time on the on the podcast. I enjoyed it a lot. Awesome. Well, thank you for doing it. Uh, this is a really, really fun conversation with a wide range of topics we hit. So, this yeah, is why feel we free love to edit. Like I said, <laughs> edit it down to a, a tight thirty minutes if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> now we always I, no. I had a great time. I I really appreciate the time. We always let the long conversations go. I think those yeah. are fun episodes. Cool. I think that's that's what our listeners like too. I think our listeners like long ones a little more. So, yeah, me too. Long form. Yeah. <laughs> well thank you so right. much thanks guys I appreciate it have a good one to order punk call the number on your screen rush delivery is available remember this special offer is not sold in stores